Welcome to the See Me Now Special Edition Podcast. I'm your host, Kelsey Coleman, with my co-host here, David Ludlum. And we are joined today by Colorado Mesa University Assistant Professor of Mass Communications, Elaine Venter. Welcome to the show. Hi, thank you for having me. Yeah, thanks for being here. I want to ask you a question about yourself before we get into talking about um, some of your research and some of the things you do here on campus. But one thing I noticed is in our recent um, student-led comeback music video... Oh, yeah. You played a cameo role in that. <laughs> yes. And um, there's been some social media campaigns outside the classroom you've engaged in with students and with uh, the marketing department. Mm-hmm. And you're always willing to say yes when people ask you to do things that are well beyond your, your job description. And yeah. I, it kinda, I guess that sort of makes you an outwardly facing academic or a public academic in some ways for our community. What is it about your personality that drives you to always say yes and to be looking for solutions and want to participate in all these other things that you don't have to do? That's a really interesting question because, I, you know, I've grown up in a family with therapists. And so self-reflection has been a very long process in growing up. And I, and I don't think I actually have a properly self-reflected on that part of my personality. It's just something that has come to a fore that when people need help, if, if it's in within your capability and it's in with your ability to do it, then I'll do it. And so far, whenever anybody has asked me for something and it's really something that they need... I'm going to try and do my darndest to get it to happen. And so far, I've been able to be in that position where I can do that. And I've had people go out of their way to help me when I really needed it. So that's something that's kind of been a continuous reminder that you need to give back what's been given to you. And that's kind of a driving force in that. Well, I love that you're always such a good sport about things in it. And I think I imagine that your students love that about you, too, that you were always (laughs) like, how do we get to yes? That's a it's really nice working with you. So, yeah, thank you. Yes, you're really energetic, you're vibrant, but you also are extremely intelligent. You just earned your PhD. <laughs> Thank you. Uh, congratulations on that. Thank you very much. It was a very, it was a, yes, daunting, daunting progress. My students will continuously ask me, oh, you did a, you just did a dissertation? It's been a very, it's been a nice long gag that we've run through. How long did it take you? Um, if you take the time from when I started coursework to um, the qualifying exam, the pre-defense, and then the defense around seven and a half, eight years. And for our listeners who aren't academics, why, I, I mean, everybody has their own reasoning, I guess, as to why they, you know, continue learning and earning these um, really high distinctions. But why, why did you decide to get your PhD? What was the reasoning behind that? So it's really funny. I actually went to my, so my first MA is in international relations, and I was actually busy studying the LSAT to, because I thought I was going to become an immigration lawyer. And I got an adjunct faculty job teaching media online. Um, And my dad and my mom both, when they saw that, like, you love media, you're international studies focused on media, you're going to love this. Just, Just you watch. And I finished my first class and I sat down with them and I said, okay, we're going to take a bit of a pivot, and this is what I want to do. I want to go into this. I love teaching. What does it mean to be an academic? My dad had been um, both therapists, but he'd been teaching um, psychology at a university, too. And he's like, okay, you have to go do your PhD. And he said, it's not going to be a struggle for you because you enjoy learning continuously in any case. And so if you want to become an academic, you know that you want to move up into the academia kind of field, a PhD is kind of considered the uppermost requirement that you're going to have to have. And so I started that process. And what, although it is a requirement, it's definitely something that I did enjoy. There were a lot of tears 
There were a lot of tears. <laughs> there were a lot of binge eating of chocolate and ice cream in evenings, sitting in a corner crying, why am I doing this? And then the next moment you pick yourself up and you're like, oh yeah, that's right. That's why I'm doing this. I really enjoyed the teaching process, but more so I enjoyed learning from other people. And for me, that's what teaching is about. Not just sharing the knowledge I know, because everybody else comes with their own sets of knowledge, especially when it comes to media. And I wanted more of that. And so that was the continuous drive in learning more and more about media in that PhD. And it pushed me in ways to understand myself and critical thinking in a way that I've now gotten to share with my students. And I think it's been a fantastic process. So rewinding way back before your PhD, uh, tell us about your disarming and charming accent. Where is it from? Where did you grow <laughs> up and what was your pathway to where you are now? I find this so intriguing that people hear the accent because I don't hear it anymore necessarily. Or when I do hear it, it sounds like it's from the East Coast. A lot of people will guess I'm either from the East Coast, but here in Colorado, since I've moved here from California, everybody's like, where are you originally from? I'm like, are they going to say East Coast? Like, no, no, no. Are you from the UK? I'm like, no, no. Uh, I'm originally from South Africa, but we moved here in December 98. So literally three months before my 13th birthday. Um, and so I've been here for a very long time. I haven't even been back. My parents have been back twice and even made me set up pretexts for when they would be sitting at a fish restaurant. That was very cruel. It was very cruel. And then, of course, they sent it to while they were there. Um, and then, so my accents just kind of remained once you're older, it sticks with you. You, you just keep it to be charming. Of you course. Just, yeah. It got me my first job at Starbucks. <laughs> I... I have to ask because, okay, you said you moved from South Africa to the U.S. Yeah. right before you turned 13. Yeah. I'm, I'm, I was also a 13-year-old girl at one point, yeah. and switching countries is just a wild thing to do at that age. What was that, what was that like for you? So it's pretty funny. You know how you said I'm this person who just you know, says yes? That's one thing I did not say yes to. In fact, I was the only one who my mom said actually had a fit about leaving because I had my friends, um, I was outgoing, and it was it was a daunting thing to think about going to a place that you'd only known through movies or television. And we didn't really know anything about the U.S., especially Fresno, California, which is where we moved originally, which has doesn't match at all anything you see <laughs> in the movies or TV about the U.S. at all. It was very much anticlimactic. Um, not L.A., definitely not the East Coast. We didn't have snow. That's what I was expecting out of all the movies we always get there. Um, and it was, I would say it was difficult. Uh, it was interesting the very first six months, especially, you're very aware of being in a new place. And, and so you kind of grab to the things that are similar. Um, but I, I am lucky because I immigrated with my family, my mom, my dad, my siblings. And so that did make things a little bit easier. Um, and then as the years go on, you know, things just kind of go in a roll. I guess two, a two-part question. Uh, why did your family immigrate? And then second, coming from a country where you have this really stark um, social stratification that you have in South Africa that is fairly, somewhat unique, how did that, coming from a country like that, influence you today, maybe politically and or your personality or how you teach or what you bring to the table? Yeah, wow. Big, big questions. Like, <laughs> hit me with a softball question. Two, two big questions are better <laughs> yeah, than one. So I, can, I can answer this. Yeah, right. um, so I think the first one in terms of coming from a social stratified 
country and coming over here. So for those people who don't know, South Africa has, um, as many countries do, a complex relationship with race. Um, you know, we had apartheid, which was the legal separation of whites from especially blacks, but pretty much all other races other than whites. Um, and I actually didn't grow up with that. Um, so I was born in 1986. And while the system was still actually legally in place, um, socially, from what I understand, a lot of people weren't following it anymore. There was still a lot of complications and protests in the 80s, especially. But by the time I was born, you know, my family, I was lucky. My parents weren't people who were into that kind of thing. And they were the ones who taught me about equality and respecting other people. And I grew up in school, in non-segregated schools from the very beginning. Um, and it's kind of interesting how they wanted to try and raise the new generation as the rainbow nation. They were really working to connect the late 80s, 90s kids as this new unified generation. They being the academia, the, the government? Okay. You know, the government yeah. and educational institutions were coming together, um, not necessarily erasing what was happening, but there was a lot of questions as to whether we focus on it, what kind of guilt would it force for the new generation. There's still those complications today. Since all my other family is still over there, we still kind of hear about a lot of the things. But there's an interesting complication in terms of my separation since I haven't been back. And, you know, not South African enough to be South African, not American enough to be American. I'm in this very liminal space. Um and then, of course, also being raised in the age of the Internet. Well, a little bit before, but then in my teens, the Internet started. And I was one of those children who I grew up on discussion boards, fan boards, things like that. That also already changed your perception of community and that your community didn't have to be this, you know, just by your country. It could be something much larger. And that had a profound effect on me, um, especially later coming to the U.S. and connecting with people from different countries, not just from South Africa, but still wanting South African media because that was just that connection in terms of that. And that has, I think, had a lot of effect in the way that I see or think about people. Um, I just became obsessed with a more global concept of people in connection as opposed to nationalized border considerations. Not that you can't think about the global without thinking about the national. The, they play interchangeably together. But as the world became smaller and smaller, and I was one of the statistics, I was a statistics, migration statistics plays in globalization. Um, it became more of a personal aspect for me playing into my personal politics and ideas of identity, um, race relations, sexuality, gender, all these things. It makes sense that this part of your life and, and, and talking about media and how it kind of shaped you and developed you. And then here you are teaching. Yeah. And, and your research actually is about media in other countries and, and, and geoblocking, right? Yeah. It became an obsession when I moved here. The internet moved at a different pace in different countries. So America was already more advanced in some respects since it started here. And in South Africa, we had, we had the internet discussion boards. You know, online streaming wasn't quite a thing yet. Music had become very early and we could stream online music. Are you talking about the dial-up days? Yeah. Message the, the dial okay. yeah. <laughs> you know what I'm talking about, right? Everybody had an AIM The AOL name, kind right? of stuff. Yes. Okay, yeah, gotcha. Those days. Right. Um, and so when everybody had Winamp, you know, you could download one amp and you could put the music on the, and then you'd listen to the visualizer and you'd watch it. Yeah, everybody had that those days. Um, and so we, we, you know, but you download videos and stuff like that. And then when I came to America and grew up in a continuously advanced Internet connectivity, movies were starting to stream on here. And then we found out that Mnet, which was one of the broadcasters in South Africa, was going online 
I tried to access that content thinking, oh my gosh, this is amazing. We can't get South African content here in the US, but now I can get it online. And I'd, been, I'd already been growing up in all these discussion boards where everybody from across the world in these different spaces were connecting that it didn't make sense to me that I shouldn't be able to connect to that media. And then the first time I tried to get to it, it said, sorry, not available in your region. I'm like, what's this? Mm-hmm. And um, that was really, I didn't realize it until I started my graduate studies, that that moment was pivotal in my relationship with global media. Kelsey said geoblocking. Can you yeah. describe what that is like in one or two sentences for people that don't know anything about it? Yes. Very okay. simply put, geoblocking in relationship to how I study it is the um, it's the restriction to online media access based on your geographic location. I lived in Nicaragua for a couple of years. And so the first year I lived there, I didn't have any internet. So Mm -hmm. I was just kind of thrown in and I was disconnected from the world. And then after that first year, I got internet and I logged on to Netflix and, you know, all my friends are like, you got to watch this show. You got to watch this show. And I couldn't figure out why I couldn't watch the show. And it just wasn't, it wasn't available in Nicaragua. And that one was even more significant because Netflix was one of the first media suppliers, if we will, who when they started going online were saying, we're breaking the boundaries in access to global media content. And yet when people actually try to access Netflix, they're like, oh, we still can't access it. Mm-hmm. But what they meant was what they are today in terms of they have some of the biggest online reach, global reach from just about any company out there, but they have different libraries for every single country. Um, And that's what a lot of people, I think a lot more people are starting to become more aware of this than ever before because of social media. This is, I don't think this is exactly geoblocking, but the subject matter you researched made me think of it. I want to ask you a question. So uh, there was a lot of years when I didn't miss a Denver Nuggets game. But <laughs> yeah. I became philosophically so enraged that I had to buy 120 channels to get one local regional channel uh-huh. that I stopped. Like, so I cut the cords, what, like, on 10 years ago. Yeah. Now. And so, but I still have not been able to watch them ever since then. I'm standing on principle. But, like, this idea of, <laughs> of regional blackouts and, yeah. and th- it's such an anachronism. And where do you see that stuff going where the the, the athletic... Um, apparatus will at some point lose control over the ability to t- so tightly control it. It's, it, it. Yeah, it's really interesting that you should mention that because um, the NFL actually tried to do a global live stream of several years ago, and I forget who the teams were now, but it was through Yahoo, so it was quite a few years ago. You know, when we mentioned Yahoo. <laughs> Bless them for even trying this. I thought this was ambitious. I had not really had a lot of high hopes. Google at this point was already pretty big. And so they said that it was it was actually going to be a promotional game in the UK because American football has become increasingly popular in Europe. And this is actually now one of the issues in terms of region blocking. ESPN and all of these folks actually buy up the licenses for who can broadcast where and when. And so they have to sell them individually. And so a lot of people, sometimes they didn't even sell the license in the UK. And now you have a lot more fans interested in that. So Yahoo and NFL teamed up and it still didn't quite work out because it turns out that the copyright and licensing system was still so complex and designed for a geographically bounded, nationally bounded territorial system versus what the internet has become. I don't think anybody ever realized that the internet was going to become this thing that it is. And I think a lot of countries struggle with making sense of this global connection and this localized 
system that we have for everything because there's a lot of intricate things. There's law and order that's involved in this. And so the way I see it going right now is that we still have this complex battle between the pre-internet and the age now after the internet. And all of the global systems, corporations and governments are trying to, they want this. Corporations especially, they're not against global movements. They're not against content moving as long as they can still control it, which isn't necessarily negative. I mean, we got to give people their due, right? If you're a media producer, you have the right to get back what you put into this. But when they're restricting it for the sake of you know, money inflation in one region or another, I don't find that a good enough reason for region blocking. But I think the more and more that social media is going to connect people, and it's just going to continue to connect people more and more. We've seen it already where one event happens in one country, it becomes suddenly significant in the US that it wouldn't have before, necessarily. Um, that's going to continue. I don't see that changing. And so I think eventually we're going to come to a forefront where they're going to all have to have another international convention. The first one having been the 1886 Bern Convention on Copyright, trying to come up with the, we all have copyright, but none of us really have an agreement on international copyright. And they didn't really figure out a system after that. And I think eventually we're going to have to come to terms with that. Everybody's going to have to come together and decide how this is now going to work because it's not going to go away it's only going to increase so are you are you saying the the issue with blocking regions from certain content is is essentially money and how and how that's being distributed yeah I mean, I know it sounds it sounds bad to say that, right? Because a lot of people will, especially today, with feelings about corporations and it's like, well, it's corporate greed, which I'm always careful to say that. But in fact, it is it is true. There was a battle between the people who were creating hardware in the 1980s, well, 60s, 70s and 80s, especially. There was this huge hardware boom that was happening in terms of media hardware that was being designed versus the content. And um, Evan Elkins actually has a fantastic book, Locked Out, where he goes through the entire history of region codes on DVDs. And I'm sure both of you having traveled extensively, you've now noticed one thing that we realized when we first came from the US was the DVDs that we brought with us didn't work on American DVD players because they were region coded. And it turns out that region codes weren't even a necessary, they weren't necessary. You have a region zero, which is a universal code, but because of copyright system that was developed previously, and in fact, yes, some companies can actually make more money by inflating a product in one region versus another. They can, also, But there's also a good reason for region blocking. Sometimes there's just not a good enough audience in another region. So, you know, why would you want it to access? But then some people say, even if there's a small minority group, though, why should they be punished just because there isn't enough people on it, especially now with the Internet, if you could be able to access on the Internet? I think previously before the Internet, it wasn't such a big deal for them. But now with the Internet, that small minority that isn't considered an economic advantage as an audience to send media there. Now they know about it and they want it and they feel that they could get access to it. And that's what's been complicating a lot of the things for them. Where I think even Disney has had to sit and completely redevelop their concept and plan around global expansionism. And would you would you say that it, it's in, in the best interest of I, I, maybe this is like broad and crazy, but in, in humanity to be able to access any information or any any content that they that they desire? Mm. Well, I'm, I'm of the biased opinion that yes, <laughs> I think access to different kinds of content can be very beneficial for people because 
already in different regions, and this is from my own experience as an immigrant, I saw how we develop media and how we think in South Africa, not just as a unified group of people, but as a different group of people too, versus the US. Different people grow up with different cultures, different languages, different ways of thinking. And that ends up having a lot to do with how you create media if you become a media producer. And I think it's very interesting for other people from different places to access these and then to use this as an educational tool. It could help you think a little bit differently about something. It can help you expand your ideas of, you know, how you think about yourself, the world around you, how your own country does things or your own people. And that's kind of one of the problems is because there are those people and we have cases of media has an effect. There are some people who don't believe that it's as you know, the, whether the effect is as powerful or not. But the fact is, because we have seen examples of media playing a role in, you know, inspiring people for, for protests, for changes in governments, that's exactly why some people don't want their people to access other kinds of media, because that there are these different kinds of ideas that might inspire and change things, whether that's for a cultural reason, a language reason even. For some, it's even a concern about language or for, for even more concerns, political, religious. Um, some are concerned about sexuality changes or gender, gender specific considerations. Those are things that they don't want to have. Continuing with, with this theme about um, the broader benefit to humanity, um, I often think about things through the lens of um, like femininity because I have these two little girls that I'm raising. Yeah. And I saw this horrific video posted the other day on the internet, a, a woman in the Middle East who was being flogged almost to death because she was caught talking on a cell phone. And there was a time when I think people assumed, especially when Twitter was in its heyday, that um, this technology was going to liberate um, women around the world who currently live in places that are are not so good to live in if mm. you happen to be female. Yeah. And um, but but this geo blocking and and nefarious actors, including state governments, who have caught up technologically are now able to use it for nefarious purposes. It didn't have this revolutionary transformational thing that we may, hoped it would yeah. as quickly as we thought. Who ends up winning? Does the does the technology and the the idea of Western values in terms of egalitarianism? end up winning or do you, or is that going to be a, how do you how do you see that playing out as 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 countries that maybe are using it for subjugation now yeah um are trying to keep up that that arms race in media who 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 comes out on top i don't think anyone comes out on top i think it continues to be a cycle a struggle back and forth back and forth that the pendulum will continue to swing as one learns how to take advantage of it the next one will learn from that and we'll see I, you know, I, I love how people ask me, and I've had this question before, who will win, who will win? I'm like, well, you're suggesting that there's going to be an end to a thing. Because winning suggests that that's it. That's the end of the race. And there is no end to this race. As long as humanity continues and life continues, we'll all continue to evolve. What'll be interesting is who wins at a particular point in time and place? And what does that look like? And then who will be the next quote unquote winner, right? And what that will then look like in that particular time and place. Um, I don't see it as an absolute, as a, there's going to be an excellent, there might be someone on top for several years. But if it's one thing that we've learned from history, that never lasts. You know, as someone is going to topple down eventually, someone is going to come and kick you from your high horse or from your t number one position, no matter who you are at some point in time, and then someone else takes over, something changes. Change is inevitable. It's just a matter of what that change looks like and for who. So the, the hope that the, the hope that these technologies would unlock some kind of lasting egalitarianism you think is maybe Pollyanna. Yeah. Okay. I mean, I'm more of a positivist. 
when it comes to media. And I, and I always hope that it will bring more positive change, but I'm also not naive. I'm very well aware that other people use it just as well. Terrorist extremists are very good at using media to draw in young people. And in the Netherlands, several years ago, had a huge problem of this in terms of videos that were being produced, you know, that, that actually convinced several young teenagers to go en masse and join. Um, and they were very good at using social media. And so I, there's a lot of people saying, well, okay, we have to shut down social media to stop this. What about the cyber bullies too? And things like that. I'm like, yeah, I can agree. But also, let's not forget, there are positives to these things. And like nothing is ever just black and white. Um, there, are, there are things that we have to consider in balancing it. And I think that's why it's, it's complicated to be in government right now with this issue, because you've got to try and find a balance with this. And it also depends what kind of government you are, right? As you pointed right. out, some governments have a very different view about how they want to run their people, and that will affect how they run the internet. And so that's why I, you know, in terms of the winning point, in terms of this, this people saying that we're going to go for a utopianist future. I'm totally there. Yes, I'm with you. Let's do it. But I'm also of the point of view that I'm like, it's not going to be a perfect utopianist future. It's like, how can we continue? What, how will that change continuously? You hit on this a little bit, but I'm, I'm curious how, what your classroom looks like with this discussion. I mean, you know, you're, here you are in front of the classroom with these young minds. And I think a lot of times it's, you know, look, look at all the horrible things that not only just social media, but media in general, um, what, what comes of it. But yeah, you know, there's this other side of how beautiful and how it, it's opened our world and, and, and allowed people to see one another mm. in, in a sense. And so how does, how does the classroom discussion go? And, and is it something similar every year or is it completely different depending on what's going on? I think sometimes sometimes there are a lot of similarities. There's certain tropes that just connect from every every semester. Um, and then it does depend. When there's a specific event, I will find that sometimes moods will change and shift a little bit more. And then and then for me then as a teacher, the way that I deal with that pedagogically is whatever the majority of the mood is, I tend to go counter to that. And so if they're more positive, I'll try and push them and be the more critical negative side of things. If they're more negative, I try to push and be the more positive side of things um, in terms of trying to create that balance. Um, and sometimes that's difficult because sometimes that means being on a position that I don't necessarily personally or politically or religiously whatever agree with, but that's not my job. My job is to critically push them in what they're thinking and seeing and how they uh, are reflecting on events and media. And so sometimes that means my job is being on the other side of things and pushing them to kind of think more critically from just their perspective. And I find that it is especially difficult when there are certain events and then people just tend to draw a little bit more into how they think and feel about it. So it becomes a little bit more of a push, push, push. And sometimes I've had to sit and actually apologize to them like, listen, I'm sorry, I'm not trying to be super, super against your side. Like, this is they're like, no, 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 we get it. We get it. And by the end of the semester, they realize some of them really realize what I've been doing the whole time. They're like, oh, you gasp, we've been had. But in a good way. Do you feel like talking about uh, video games for a minute? I, I love talking about video games. That was a forever segue. Well, actually, it's not a really weird segue at all. Because if we're talking about my research, which is all about media, but my big concern is media's connection with people. That's my big thing about media. That's what I love about media. Media, and I know some people are like, are you kidding me? Have you seen what media has done to people? I'm like, okay, yeah. 
But also media can connect people. Remember, that's the utopianist in me coming out there, right? And for me, video games was actually one of the first mediums um, where I created huge community of connection. So for me, video games is is great segue. Great Makes sense. Uh, okay, I'm gonna I'm gonna put myself out there really quick. I had in high school, I had to do this project and it was violence in video games and the destruction of it. And I was like, really just Color me very surprised. passionate about it as like this 16 year old girl. Mm-hmm. Um, but now, of course, you know, not everything is black and white. And so I just kind of want to get your perspective on video games in, in that sense of um, does it does it make individuals more violent or? Oh, it is- can. Absolutely. And a lot of my students are like, well, how can you say that? You love video games. Like, yes. But especially when you love something, you have to be critical of it. Just because you love something doesn't mean that you can't question it. It doesn't mean that you can't admit to the pitfalls of the thing that you love. In fact, I find that when you love something, you have to be more critical of it. You have to expect more from it. You have to ask more from it. And so I can be very critical of video games as much as I love it. And yes, for certain kinds of people, and this is a difficult one, but there's lots of of psychological examinations and studies that have been done that certain kinds of people are more susceptible to the violence and certain kinds of behaviors in video games, whereas others, it doesn't do anything for them. Uh, I think I'm probably one of those people. I don't play. I don't play them because the last time I played Call of Duty, <laughs> I, when I was done, I, it's strange to call them games because mm-hmm. they're so immersive, more so than a book or a film, because you're combining so many different um, sensory inputs. So I, I find them to be more than games. I don't know what they are, but the way they affect your psychology and engage you, it, it's at every sensory level. And so do. I, I understand why you would call Super Mario Brothers a game because it's like it's no more complicated than a board game. But is there something about these immersive games that maybe it's odd to even call them games? I think that's a really good question, especially with the growing popularity of virtual reality, which and, and to be honest, the idea of interactivity and immersion is a big discussion in video games. It's actually one that government often brings up in relationship and in comparison to how they want to regulate or place laws on video games versus films and TV shows. Um, the big question was always like you put a controller in someone's hand. Now, does does just putting a controller in the hand make it interactive or immersive. For me, though, Super Mario Brothers is none less immersive than playing Call of Duty. It's just a different kind of immersion. But I see what you mean in terms of Call of Duty, that immersion is a little bit more in terms of 3D content versus 2D content from the previous oh, Super Mario's. Audio mm-hmm. smells even now where it sprays the stuff, like all those things are so engaging that it's almost like an alternate reality in a, in a more complicated yes. way or something like that. I don't yes. know. Yes, no. And, and I think it's interesting because I think a lot of people, there are a lot of, games video game scholars who are questioning like how do we actually define video games and that's important because we do that in every medium we we're trying to define what is online te- what is television especially in an online world because the way that we define it is the way that we then um interact and engage with that medium it's the way that we begin to understand that medium and i think in terms of those video games for me Yeah, there is a little bit of a difference in terms of they're a little bit more immersive, but a video game for me is something that has a particular objective that you have to meet, that you have to get to. And so that for me is the video game. I don't play, I don't play video games, but I know that you can like put on this headset, right? And you're connected with all these other people. Well, that's if you play virtual reality 
video games. Oh, okay. Not all video games have virtual reality headsets. Uh-huh. So, for example, some of them are still on computer or, you know, they're, they're on a they're on a 2D screen, like your phone or television. But, yeah, virtual reality is when you actually, you put on a headset and the, you know, the virtual world is superimposed on the actual real world. Well, what about like, okay, like Call of Duty? Can you, like, I, I, you have like this microphone, right? And you can yeah. like be talking to people and you like, I don't know if you have teammates or what. But you do. That, okay. <laughs> and so with that, is, is there a, is it a community building kind of? Is that, is that? Is that there? Oh boy, some of the folks who are listening right now who are probably in, in on this discussion are like, how is she going to respond to this? Because I actually have a personal experience with Modern Warfare, which is one of the Call of Duty. So uh, um, I started playing on Xbox several years ago when that first came out. And um, I played online. It was horrible. It was terrible. As soon as someone figured out that I was a woman... Oh boy, um, all the things that people have heard about the toxicity and video gamers and the uh, misogyny, like, yeah, whether it's misogyny, that's a whole nother actual question, because I'm going to be honest with you, a lot of these were teenagers, so I, I, I wouldn't claim them to be misogynistic quite yet. Many of them have just heard these jokes and some of them were continuing, like, they don't really understand what they're saying until they're older. Um, but, you know, yeah, there were some really bad get in the kitchen jokes and, and it would get gross and it would got bad to the point where I just would then turn off my microphone uh, and then to a point where I'm like, this is enough, and I quit. And I met some really great gamers, don't get me wrong. I got connected with a really great group of older gentlemen. Many of them were actually from different countries. They were pro gamers just about, and they took me on even though I sucked at that game so bad. (laughs) But I was the best human shield for them figuring out where someone was. But I just told them after a while, like, getting the stuff from the other people just wasn't great. So I I quit that and left that um, and came back later and found my community. And so, yes, there can be community. It can be good and it can be bad, just like anything offline. You have to find the right people. I want to channel my uh, 16-year-old Kelsey here for a second and get back to the <laughs> violence. And I was, as you were t- I was talking about Modern Warfare and some yeah. of the Call of Duty games, we'll just stick with that for a second. But um, if you think about like the, the true and absolute horrors of the 20th century mm. being rendered in video games yeah. for people's enjoyment... And done so so graphically that everything from genocide yeah. to um, you know suicide to um, mass murder yeah. of 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 citizens, you can do all these things, and yeah. many people choose to do them. So that's different than jumping on the mushroom in Super Mario Brothers in a pretty profound way. I, I think. would agree. So how do you? I, I, I sort of get the reflexive thing that Kelsey was getting. I was like, this violence it can be, it can be nothing but pathological because especially when you build in this community aspect you're talking about because you're celebrating um, genocide. Yeah. I mean, it, it's fun. You're, that's what that's the claim. Anyway. So what, how do you yeah. react to that in the classroom? How do you manage this conversation? Well, it's actually really interesting that you should mention that because Modern Warfare, I think, was one of the games that had a very controversial scene in it where, so you were a plant with a terrorist where you were supposed to work with them until you could turn. And one of the scenes was an airport scene where you would go in and they would just... You know, pardon, gun down people. Um, I was incredibly, incredibly controversial. A lot of people came out saying, like, what is the point of this? You know, we've had films that have been questioned for the controversial violence, but now less so than in video games. But a lot of people argue it because you were playing it and you had this remote control. And especially with the Xbox, you had the tactile vibration release, right? Some people said that it was different to see it. And and I played through that scene and it made me feel incredibly uncomfortable. Um, I couldn't finish it. I stopped it. And then later they came up with a patch. 
patch where you could actually choose to skip the scene if you wanted to, which why they didn't originally design that with that idea. But for them, they had they the designers had stated that they weren't doing it as a glorification. They didn't want to glorify the mass murder of people. They wanted people to question why terrorists would do this. And I'm like, I don't know if I quite went on board with them and their kind of reasoning for that. But for some people, it's just like in films. Why do we represent rape on film? Why do we represent, um, you know, we've, we've seen the mass murders on films and genocide, you know, and things like that. Why do we want to represent those things at all? Is it a glorification or is it a way for us to self-reflect and consider certain things as a way to open up discussions? And I think that's the important thing about anything when it comes to violence, whether it's on television, film, but especially video games, is what's the, what's the goal and purpose? Is this purely for glorification? Is this just, as they say, horror porn or things like that? Or is there an opening here for a much larger discussion? And I think that's a fine line. I think some have been more successful at it than others. I think that earlier rendition of Modern Warfare was just not successful at it. But we've had later games that have dealt with terrorism, suicide, um, losing family that have been done far more poignantly um, and some have done it more subtle, subtly and others have done it with a heavy-handed way and it worked. And I think it takes a very unique director to be able to draw that line and make that clear. We have a, an eSports team yeah, we on do. campus. Uh, and, and I know we're running out of time, so I, I, I hate that we're rushed because this is such a great conversation. Um, but real quickly, I know when you got this team together. It's relatively new. Uh, it was it was largely in part to also create this community yeah. of gamers, right? And then and teaching about, you know, like stress and conflict, mm. conflict management, that, that sort of thing. Is that yeah. right? Yes. So actually, the esports club had been a club before I came on campus in August 2017. Uh, Robert BJ Long had started it. They started it as like three people in the dorms. And then they grew to a small club, had a small room. And then they found out that I was into video games from the IT folks when they were looking for someone new. And from there, we grew. We went from, from their small little room meeting to Confluence Hall. We got some permission there for games. And they asked us, like, why do we need this? We said, because gamers need to come together. They, we were not isolated people. The whole, there's a complete misconception about gamers being isolated human beings that hate other human beings that just want to be alone. And the only reason we're on mic is because we have to be. We're incredibly social and we want to be social and we want connection. We just do it through video games. And so while we can connect virtually in a way that other sports can't, um, we prefer to, there's a lot of people who prefer to be in person. And so creating that space was really important. I love that. Thank you for kind of wrapping that yeah. up for yeah. us. Yeah, awesome. It is a it is a complex world and and whether it's film or media or video games, um, there's a lot to talk about. So thank you so much for being on the show today. Thank you so much for having me. It was great fun. This is the See Me Now Special Edition podcast. You can find it on SoundCloud, See Me Now or on Spotify. <laughs>